But let's now give our intent, uh, listening ears to the word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, Jeroham, and the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of, my, of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued to praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit, and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of the great vexation and anxiety of my heart. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, we thank you for your word, Lord, the process and the beautiful description of this woman who has hoped and put her trust in everything other than you. Coming to the end of herself, Lord, we can't help but see so many of our own stories in this story. So we pray that you would help us to see that, Lord. As much as things change, they really stay the same. And you are the God who saves. You're the God who saved Hannah. You're the God who saves us. We pray you would help us to see that and the beauty of Jesus as we read through this passage, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the saddest visits of my life was I went to visit a friend who uh, had suffered with eating disorder for a long time, eventually was put into a, 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 a treatment center, which was a really, it was a nice home in La Costa. Uh, and we went in and it was so, it was, uh, it was so disturbing because it was this house that was just full of these otherwise very healthy young girls, well-dressed, looked well put together. Um, except for one thing, they had all nearly starved themselves to death. And that was sad to me, even more so than a guy who spent a lot of time in like the very, you know, the, the lowest levels of detox facilities and having visited a lot of men in the throes of alcoholic destruction who were sitting in hospital beds, bright yellow, looking like they'd swallowed three basketballs from liver distension, so sick. This was even sadder because it wasn't grisly old men. It was otherwise these attractive, well-put-together, well-dressed young women uh, whose desire to be loved and to be seen as beautiful became so all-consuming it literally consumed them from the inside out. The little god of beauty became a cruel master for them because no matter how much they bowed down, how much they worshiped, no matter how much they sacrificed, it was never enough. Now that's a, a graphic and an extreme illustration, but it's, uh, it's something that we all feel. We're all, we all feel the nip of that ringer, at least a little bit, right? We, Nisa and I once were 
visiting some beach town and you know we were thinking wow wouldn't it be so nice to like live here and raise the kids right next to the beach and we were doing a little window shopping and we walked by this shop and there was this pair of kid jeans in the window for $250 and it just kind of stopped us in our tracks we were like and I'm sure this you know this community isn't defined by the fact that you know this one shop sells $250 jeans for kids but it still kind of stopped us in our tracks like what kind of community what kind of community is it? Do we want to raise our kids in a community that values $250 jeans for uh, seven-year-old girls? And uh, we were like, no, not really, you know? So we moved to East County. And, uh, <laughs> but what kind of people, what is it? What kind of people uh, are buying $250 for their children, for jeans, for their kids? It's, it's people, parents who have pretty much completely internalized the siren's call of consumerism as social acceptance. Or really, if we want to get honest, it's probably consumerism is social dominance. Because you all know that's pretty much what, what we're doing whenever we buy something that's like five times more expensive than something else just like it because the label. You all know we're, make, you're making a, we're making a play for social dominance in that, in that buy. Can I get an amen? <laughs> That's something we all are afflicted by. That's the biblical term. We're afflicted by, by that sense and that value in the world. Maybe you're like thinking, all right, thank you, Captain Obvious. We learned all about this in Christianity 101. Tell us something we don't know. But it's one, it's one of those things that we all know, and yet it's so pervasive in our lives that we just don't even realize how much we do it and how much it affects us. Because there's like this base level of like cultural acceptability of finding value and self-worth and all these other things. So we just hum along, you know, joyfully in our lives, or not so joyfully, we just hum along you know, doing all these things, um, or even the good stuff, the legit stuff of our life, it's, uh, you know, it gets, it gets twisted from being the good gifts of God to, to uh, you know, to the, th the very things which give us self-value and self-worth in life. And we do it with everything. We do it with our kids. We do it with our kids' education. We do it with their character, right? Have you ever been embarrassed by what your kids are doing in front of other people? Let me tell you, as the pastor... <laughs> When my kids are like going off, it's like, it's like horrifying and embarrassment. I can't imagine. I can't, I just can't, I can, we can't have that. We cannot have you kids acting like this in front of the other people because then they're going to know what kind of parents we are. They're going to know that we're sinners and we just get the, your pastor's kids. You got to get it together. If it becomes the vehicle for us to be loved and accepted and feel worthy, to feel loved in the eyes of the homeschool community or the private school community or at least, God forbid, the charter school community, the wardrobe you wear, whether it's Prada or Dixon, the career that you chase down, whether it's secular or ministerial, the car you drive, the bus route you take to work, the house that we live in, the college we went to, the church you go to, the church you lead, um, the mission trips you've been on, 
the physical appearance, your fitness level, your ability to project a sense of holiness and spiritual maturity to the others in your church, uh, your intelligence, your Bible knowledge, that magic combination of being not too smart, not too stupid, not too fat, not too skinny, not too old, not too young, the right friend group, the right social community, the right this, the right that, uh, whether you have secured the very best spot for a homeless camp in downtown or the very best lot for your house on Mount Soledad, if that's the thing that's giving you self-value and self-worth, just to the extent that we get our sense of worth and value from those things is the exact extent of how worthless we're going to feel in the end. Ask me how I know. The little gods uh, that we all bow down to and worship are cruel masters because no matter how much you sacrifice to them, it's never enough. It's never enough. And that's what's up with our girl, Hannah, in this story. See, Hannah's worshiping. She's worshiping a cruel master. Uh, you know, I know, and we know, we know the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. But every once in a while, man, it just kind of blows my mind how similar we are with these people in the, in the stories, right? Hannah, I mean, she's almost a contemporary of the Iceman that they dug out of the Alps, you know? And that's like a museum piece. And yet here's this, this rural farming girl who's caught up in the same kind of rat race we are. It's different social, different social order. Uh, it's, you know, there's a different hierarchy. But it's the same thing, man. She, her little vicious God that she is worshiping is social status. It's how respected she is in the eyes of all the other women at the watering hole. How much social clout she has at, at the big harvest party. Or on their, you know, on the road, on the road to Shiloh for these three times a year to, to go to these big parties in Shiloh is what they are really to worship God. It's social status. The eyes that are upon her. What do they think of her? Because in the ancient Near East, your tribe, your family, your nation, it depended on one thing more than anything else, and that was that you produced. You made a lot of babies. The more babies you made, the more field hands you had, the more agriculture you produced, the more wealth you had, the more wealth you had, uh, the more security you could develop. Also, the more babies you had, the more sons you had that you could put in the army, and the bigger your army, the bigger your military. Not only could you create safety for yourself from other nations, but you could also conquest and take other nations. So it all came down for a woman in that culture. You know, it may seem strange to us where a lot of women choose not to have children or choose to have a few children. In that culture, your whole sense of value uh, was really wrapped up within whether or not you were a mother of Israel. It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. It's not... It's not just that Hannah really likes kids and she's serving in the nursery at the temple at Shiloh every year and she's you know, holding the babies and getting depressed because she really wants to have kids of her own. It's wrapped up in her very status as a woman in that culture and it's, and it's burning her up. It is literally burning her up and making her feel worthless. 
and, and it's being constantly rubbed in her face, not just by the surrounding culture, but think about, imagine this, her husband has another wife who has got a bunch of kids, Penina. Doesn't she just sound, you know, Penina. Penina. Well, Penina, it says, used to provoke her grievously. That's a nice smoothed out translation. The verse, word says thundered at her. Penina was like a thunderstorm, a perfect Instagram feed that she had to look at every single day of her life and measure herself against. And she came up short. And Penina was always about letting her know. Came up short. She came up short. Why? And what happened? She was, uh, you know, it says Hannah wept and would not eat. That's repetitive action. That was her life. She's weeping. Her life was just sadness, devastation. She didn't even want to eat. She was so depressed because she had convinced herself because she wasn't able to live up to the cultural expectations of her day. She, her like baseline speech to herself was, you're worthless. You suck. You're not worth anything. And that was her daily, her daily thing, you know. And you know, the awful truth of it is, um, even if she could have had babies, it still wouldn't, it still wouldn't have helped. Because worshiping that God uh, worshiping any god other than God is still not going to be enough. See, they, we talk about this, uh, people talk about having this God-shaped hole, you know, that God can fill. I think that's true, but it's more like there's this God-sized hole that we try to fill, right? I mean, I wanted to get one of those like big feed bins, but I couldn't. So you're gonna have to use your imagination. Imagine this is a swimming pool, and, uh, and we're gonna fill it up with my teaspoon. It's this God-sized hole that no matter, no matter how much you throw into it, it's still empty. You just can't, you can't fill it up, you know? It's like, oh. Love your outfit. Oh, that post was so dope. Now all you have to do is a better one every day of your life, forever. This, this is the career that's going to do it for me. Now everyone will know he loves me. Looking pretty swole, bro. That sermon was so good. <laughs> I hope they ask me about my GPA. It's still empty. Oh, shoot, there's a hole in the bottom. 
no matter how much we try to fill it up with those other things, it's just a drop in the bucket. They can't last. They don't last. They never last. They can't fill it up. They can't fill up a God-sized hole that only God can fill. And so she's literally being eaten alive. There's, there's this great, you know, there's this speech. It's one of the more cliched speeches in preaching by a guy named David Foster Wallace who gave a commencement speech. He was a, not a believer. It's a super cliche, but he said it better than just about anybody in this speech about how being, you worship anything other than God, you'll be eaten alive. You know, he says, if you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your, you to your own fear. You worship your intellect being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, because the devil has created this system, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What's the world? The world is this system of alluring things that hook our souls and try to make us believe that that's where we're going to find satisfaction and joy in life, and they're all empty. They can't be filled, and so he just puts us on these treadmills. We unconsciously, we don't even know what you're doing, but you're doing this, just stop. This week, just stop and think about every time you feel upset or feel depressed or feel, you know, angry or anxious or worthless, ask yourself, what is it I'm anxious about? You're going to find yourself holding a little teaspoon, filling up a swimming pool. You know, Hannah was a good little Jewish girl. She knew all about God. She was raised in the temple. But what she really worshipped was social status, and it was eating her alive. And you know the, the crazy part, the craziest part of the story? Well, one of the craziest parts of the story is that in Hebrew text, whenever it wants to make an important point, it'll repeat it twice. Right? Boom, boom. They didn't have italics, they didn't have word processors, they didn't have indentations, they didn't have any way to mark, and the way they marked out the important stuff was they said it twice. The thing it says twice is the reason why she was barren. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. I thought God wanted me to prosper. Why would God do that to her? Why would God put her in that position? Well, the answer is because God, as a good father, was leading and bringing his daughter into something better. And that's what he does with us. On uh, April 16th, 2004, I walked into the county detox facility for the third time with 37 cents in my pocket and the clothes on my back. Having just uh, lived through a stunning decline <laughs> from thinking I was on top of the world to being uh, pretty much just like the craziest homeless guys you see out on the street yelling at traffic. That was me. It's hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe now. But there's people in this room who saw me and they will vouch for me. Uh, it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And yet, at the same time, 
although I, I don't want to ever go through it again. It was the best thing that ever happened to me because it was exactly what I needed for God to stop me from bowing down to all these foolish little gods that were trying to kill, they were killing me, literally killing me, demanding more and more and more. It was so never enough and I felt so worthless and so empty. It just literally, it took everything from me. Oh, God was bringing me through that terrible tragedy out of that and into something better and that's what he's doing for Hannah. He's bringing her to the end of herself so he can bring her into something better. You read the story, there's this, seems, there's this moment of resolution. They're at Shiloh, right? Shiloh is the temple. Shiloh is talked about as the temple. It's the tabernacle tent, but it's been there so long at Shiloh. It's the, it's the proto-Jerusalem. This is the center of Israelite worship. Uh, it, the temple, the tabernacle has been there so long. It's been so established. This is like big religion. The high priest is there. Uh, and they're, they're there, everyone's eating and drinking because it's a celebration, but of course Hannah is weeping and not eating, and there's this point in the story where it says, and Hannah arose. There's a sense of resolution in her, vo in her, in her movement. There's this decisive resolve of someone who's literally tried everything other than God, and now she's finally at the end of her rope and is willing to try God. And so she goes into the temple, the permanent tabernacle in Shiloh, and she, she gets down on her knees. She prays so hard, Eli thinks she's drunk. And that's some prayer, man. That is some legit prayer. She's praying so hard, her like mouth can't even keep up. It's just, just moving. She's praying so hard, she's like straight ugly face, cry, spit coming out of her mouth. She's on the, on the steps of the, of the temple, and she looks like she's a drunk woman. And Eli says, you know, and Eli rebukes her. Uh, you, know, it says, you know, it says that her prayers were multiplied. It means that she was there for a long time like that. She was there like that for a long time. But you know what, there's this, uh, there's this inherent assumption that of her even being there in the first place. And the assumption is what? That, that, the, that God, as she understood God, the creator of heaven and earth, uh, would care enough about this little rural farm girl that he would actually descend to her and enter her life and that he cared about her shame enough to come and, and answer her prayer. That was her inherent belief. That's those like the glowing first embers of faith that we see in Hannah and in her life. And that's true. That is true. It's true about the Christian understanding of God. That even though God is the creator of heaven and earth and more fantastically powerful than we could possibly imagine, he's also with us. He's so powerful, he can give each and every one of us his undivided attention 24-7. And that's what he's doing with Hannah. She's got those first embers, all the hallmarks of a person who is coming online and coming to those, that, that first realization of faith is that if God loves her and if God is willing to come to her, if, God, if she is precious to God, it doesn't 
matter what the rest of the world thinks. That's so much more than being seen as something or anything in anyone else's eyes. And then there's this transformative moment, right? Evidence of a living faith where, and, 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 it's, and it's encapsulized in this act of giving, right? The Holy Spirit not being subtle here in the text with the imagery. There's a woman who spent her entire life consumed with how she can get what she needs out of life and all of a sudden she's completely transformed and instead she's taking that one thing that she wants more than anything else in the whole world and she's saying, I want it, but I want it for you. Uh, not for me, Lord, but for you. You are enough for me. And from here on out, from here on out, everything, everything I have is for you and for your glory. And she gives, she offers to give him the son. Now, and so look, what happens? What happens in that moment? She, the son she has is Samuel, who is the, you know, a judge of Israel. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's this picture of Jesus. He has all the offices of Jesus. And really what he does is he goes on to save Israel is in this spiritual and moral decline. The temple at Shiloh is about to be turned into a parking lot by the Philistine army. And Israel is going to go into free fall. And Samuel is the man whom God has chosen to transition, to bring Israel out of utter corruption and confusion and moral freefall and into the era of the kings and to David and to, and to Solomon. And then all the promises that are made through that. He's this crucial person in the history of Israel. And Hannah is given the unbelievable honor to participate in what God is doing. To not just give herself a son for her glory, but to give a son to Israel that mirrors the son that God gives to Israel in such a way that he's, that son saves Israel and brings, brings glory to God. Now that's amazing. Maybe you're not still, uh, maybe you're not super uh, convinced by that. Maybe that still sounds super unappealing. You're like, all right, okay, great. But she still didn't get a son. She, well, she's still weeping in bitterness, right? I mean, she's, um, you know, maybe that still sounds like all the fun is being sucked out of life. Maybe that sounds like that meme talking about vegan bacon, where if you switch to vegan bacon, you can eliminate up to 90% of the joy that you still have in life by giving everything to God. What's left for me? I'll tell you what, right? I didn't read this part for, for time. But when Hannah brings her son back to the temple and brings it, this, her son back to Eli, they bring an offering called a vow offering, which was an offering that you brought to the Lord as an act of gratitude for a prayer that was answered. It wasn't a, a sin sacrifice. It was you make a prayer, you ask God, and you made a prayer, you ask God for something, God delivered on that prayer, and then you would show up with this offering to, as an act of gratitude to God. You know what they showed? You know what the, the most extravagant gift in the book of Leviticus was for that offering? was a bull, a one-year-old bull. You know what they showed up with? Three bulls. They show up with three bulls. Why? It's... It, it's it's this picture. She was so overwhelmed with gratitude 
not just that she had a son, but that she was freed from these chains and from these brutal gods that had oppressed her her entire life. And she was full of her knowledge of, this whole, of, this, of God through the spirit of her union with, with him, of, of this whole new experience of life that she was experiencing. They show up with three bulls to make it super clear. She was not just joyful, but her life had become a fountain of living water that just overflowed, overflowed. She wasn't empty anymore. She'd come face to face with that great truth that God alone can satisfy our deepest desires. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story that on top of God giving us satisfaction in this life, he also gives and gave Hannah this vision of the life to come. Um, you know, there's two types of knowledge, right? There's book knowledge, there's stuff you read about and know, and then there's what we call experiential knowledge. It's stuff you know from doing it or being there, right? For example, um, until you go to the Grand Canyon and you see it, right? You don't have experiential knowledge of the Grand Canyon. You can read about it, you can look at pictures in books, you can see videos, you can watch movies, but none of that like prepares you for standing on the rim and looking out across the, and seeing how big it is. It's crazy. Same thing with maybe Yosemite Valley, there's other you know, places of great beauty where you can see pictures, you can learn about it through book knowledge, but it's just not the same. You don't know it. You don't know it until you stand there and you experience it person personally. And that's the same with God, right? It is quite possible to know a whole lot about God without knowing, without knowing God. Uh... And knowing God comes from personally experiencing his immensity. And in that experience, what theologians call, we call regeneration, when the, God comes to us, gives us a new heart, and like opens our eyes with faith to the, to the real supernatural reality of the world we live in, in that moment there is supernatural experiential knowledge that's impressed upon the soul. And that's happened here at Ahana. Uh, it happened to me, and I was saved in 2005. I, I walked into uh, a big church down in, in uh, well, I was up in, uh, in uh, Sarah Mesa at the time. And I walked into that church having, uh, literally that week, I was working through these resentments about Christianity. I couldn't, like, believe that Christianity was so arrogant that it would say that, you know, only Jesus, Jesus is the only way to, is to salvation, and I just, couldn't, I just couldn't wrap my mind about how a God of love could exist simultaneous with a place called hell. And I was super resentful about it. It was like, just, it was just patently obvious that those things were false. And I went to this church, and I got tricked into doing an altar call. That's a whole other story. It's, it is what God used to get me to make a public profession of faith. I went to bed that night angry at the whole experience. I woke up in the next morning... And I knew 
I knew exactly why uh, God didn't owe us. God wasn't responsible for giving us multiple ways for us to choose from for salvation, like, like a smorgasbord, like a, a buffet, a spiritual buffet that we could choose from as consumers, religious consumers. We were fortunate that God made a way, and that that a way was all open and available to anyone, cross-cultural, cross-generational. Uh, Christianity is the most inclusive movement that's ever, ever known in the history of mankind. And I understood while people could hate God so much that the only place that they could be was outside of his presence. And, but I didn't think through those things. They were just implanted in me, right? And it's the same thing happens with Hannah, right? She writes this song and she sings this song after her experience with God in the temple. And most of it's pretty uh, classic, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, a song about a reversal of fortunes, that those who place their trust in Yahweh, those, not the strong, not the proud, not the wise, but those who get close to God and trust in him, God lifts up and exalts, and those that hate God are scattered. So much so that all those, even the poorest of the poor, people who make their living by sorting through trash at the garbage dump, if they get close to God, that's all it takes for them to be lifted up and placed in seats as princes. That's royalty language. That's like being part of the cosmic royal family. Um, you know, most of that kind of makes sense given her story. She was, you know, she didn't trust God. She worshiped these other things. She was scattered. She was depressed. She turned to God. She got close to him. And she was lifted up. Her shame was taken away, but then it gets weird at the end. There's this weird twist in the story, and she sings this song. And she says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's a title, capital A, anointed. Now all of a sudden, it just at the end, she makes this turn and she brings the whole thing into these cosmic proportions of salvation from death, of going into darkness or being seated on the royal family with uh, princes and, uh, and God rendering judgment to the ends of the earth, but bringing his people in to sit as members, as princes of this royal family. Uh, and then, but the big question is, what king is she talking about? Israel doesn't have a king. This is the time when Israel, there was no king in Israel, and people did whatever the heck they wanted. There's not going to be a king in Israel for 70 years. At least. They're not even thinking about kings. And yet here she is singing about this king who is going to be the anointed one. Uh, which in uh, Hebrew is Mashiach, which means Messiah. And so to get our answer, what king is she talking about? What king is it that she's pinning all eternal and cosmic hope on? 
And to get the answer, we have to go fast forward a thousand years to when Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings another song after the angel Gabriel comes and visits her. And, and Mary sings this song that scholars have noticed, it's almost exactly like the song of Hannah. It's, it's clearly based on Hannah's song. Same order, same subject matter, same reversal of fortune, same anointing, same horn of salvation. Uh, and it's clear that Mary is referring all the way back to Hannah's prayer because what is she doing? She's saying what Hannah prophesied is now coming to pass in the king who's going to be born. So the king... The king is Jesus, says Mary. But how did Hannah know that? About a king and a Messiah a thousand years before he was born? Because being brought near to God, being brought online with God's spirit, she had that supernatural knowledge that was given to her. You know, She was a good Jewish girl. She'd gone to temple her whole life. She knew all about God. But now it was different. Now she knew God. And with that knowledge came the understanding that it's not just about satisfaction in this life. Although God will meet all our needs. And as you go on with the story, we find out later she has five more kids. And God's in his extravagant grace gives her five more kids. But that's not even what it's all about for her anymore. What it's about for Hannah is knowing that this world isn't, isn't it. That there's a whole new world coming. A king that sees over that world that we're all going to be a part of in a very short time. And even now are a part of. And that, that's our great hope. That's our hope above any other thing in this life. And the same is true for us. The same is true for you. When God saves us, that knowledge about God becomes knowledge of God. And it, it fills our minds with not just what's present now, but what's to come. So wrapping this all up, listen, uh, you know, once again we see in the story that people are support players. We see that Hannah plays this important role. Does she, as a matriarch, save the day by giving up her son? Totally, she does. But even that is a picture that God is using to show us how God, the hero of the story, is really saving Israel through the gift of his son, Jesus. And when we break it down, we see that's the story about how, uh, how we get crushed under the never-ending demands of the vicious little gods that we worship. How God's spirit fundamentally changes us from the inside out as God brings us to himself through his presence and through worship, and we become people who are fundamentally about giving instead of getting. Uh, and in that new foundation of life, all the joy of the Spirit becomes available to us. We see that everything we were trying to get through sin is actually what we accomplish by getting closer to God. And finally, that fills us with the eternal joy in this world and an eternal hope in the next that cannot be taken away from us. And that, that helps a lot, man. It's not just theology. It helps on Monday morning. Because I don't care who you are, but tomorrow morning, all your little gods are going to show up and you're going to be tempted to bow down and worship them. <laughs> oh, God of my career, please give me social power and clout. Oh, God of my church plant, Please bring more members so that I can be 
glorified among church planters. Whatever it is, everybody's going to bow down to that little God. And by knowing, by knowing this stuff, we can say, not today, Satan. What I have in Christ and what we have in God fills us up. And not only is it enough, it's way better. And we can worship God instead. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Crazy to think that the people back then were up against the same stuff that we are, but then again, it's not. Satan's not creative. Sin is not original. The old ruts of sin are deep and wide, and we still get caught in them, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to understand um, If you are for us, since we are precious to you, it doesn't matter what the world thinks about us. And in that freedom, we can go about being close to you and serving you. And we trust, uh, we trust that your word is true. And we ask you to remember that promise to us, Lord, that you will give us joy and create in us fountains of, of eternal life that overflow into all the relationships and places that you have us on earth so that people You might use us to show people what you're really like and what life with you is really all about. In Jesus' name, amen.